Patrick, I appreciate you doing this, my friend. You ventured all the way out to Bay Ridge in the rain. Yeah, no, no problem. Happy to be here. Thanks. Author of the incredible book, All the Beauty in the World, the Metropolitan Museum of Art and Me. But before we talk about the book, you made so many sports references during the book. And you're rocking a Mets hat. I am. Big time sports guy, it's, it's, big time Mets guy. I, I do love the Mets. It, it's not the season to love the Mets, but I, I do. It's not the season to love the Yankees. And I'm no, the biggest Yankee I know. Where did the love of the Yankee, uh, the Mets come from? So I grew up a White Sox fan because I, I grew up outside Chicago. Okay. And I still like the White Sox. In fact, I, I'm, I, I'm high school friends with Jason Benetti, who's the play-by-play guy for the White Sox. Oh, wow. Okay. So when the White Sox came to Yankee Stadium uh, and played a doubleheader not that long ago, I got to sit in the booth right between Jason and... Back, Gordon Beckham, who's this color guy, That's was just wild. sitting between the two of them for six hours. I'm like a radio nerd, and I go to sleep every night listening to like old uh, classic baseball audio. To oh, sit in the booth, was it like the greatest experience ever? Oh, it was they, amazing. I'm just blown away by that. We should do a whole show about that. That's wild. It was amazing. You know, I uh, what they have to do. I always thought that. You know, when they say, oh, that's their, he hasn't had a three triple or three double game since May or whatever, that they're being fed that onto some little screen. But no, Jason, he was there with, he had a, a laptop with baseball savant and baseball reference, and he had his iPad with game day, and he was looking at the standings. And then he also had, and he's doing all of this with a scorecard that has numbers all over the place while being just sort of a relaxed, engaging guy bantering and talking about the game it was amazing that's what fascinates me you know sometimes i'll see college ones you know they'll have the um the camera in the booth and you see them having a conversation like no no big deal looking stuff up and writing down they're playing this I'm like how are they doing this next guy oh yeah this is what's going on like it's such a talent that's beyond our realm isn't it oh yeah and he has a little cough or he's got a cough button but he also has a, a button where he can talk back to the van and he's asking them you know do you have a shot of the umpire there G- give me the shot of the umpire he's also sort of producing the telecast at one point actually he i forgot what the circumstance was he told the telecast um you know the next time show this it was some little joke and then they did it and he gave them the credit he was like oh we got the best van in the business here look at they wow they <laughs> so i forgot they were talking about horoscopes or okay. something so he said add their horoscope to the next the next batter that comes up and he said oh we got the best van in the business. But that was him. And, and you know what else fascinates me? When they're getting fed stuff into the ear and they're still talking. Like if right now, if, if someone else comes into my room and talks to me, I have to stop talking. And they're, they're getting stats fed to them sometimes. And they're just up. Boom, boom. It, it, it blows my mind. Exactly. But to finish that story, I mean, just when I, I moved to New York when I was 18 years old and I like baseball enough that and I wasn't going to choose the Yankees because they're an AL course. team. Yeah. And also, you're just outside in New York. You don't like the Yankees. So <laughs> I, I, I jumped on the Mets bandwagon about 2005. So who were your White Sox guys growing up? Who'd you love? Frank Thomas. Yeah, the Big Hurt that, was your yeah, guy. Yeah, he was Number my 35 guy. was your man. Oh, yeah. yeah. Did, did you have the baseball card? Remember the era card with no, uh, no name on it? That was like... I had some. I had a Frank Thomas card that was. I think for some reason there wasn't a rookie card because okay. he might have come up. You know, had a cup of coffee. I don't. I don't know. But I. I had some. I actually have it at home somewhere. And who are you met guys? Uh, well, I don't know. David Wright, Jose Reyes. I mean, I loved that that sort of era. That was so fun and Santana and. Um, but yeah, lately I don't know. It's got to be the young guys now, right? It, it has to be, and you know what? They yeah. have because they got rid of Verlander and Max and everybody. Which I'm fine by. Yeah, I had I was, no. I, after the beginning of the season, you kind of knew. When Diaz got hurt, you kind of knew it was going to be one of those years, right? Yes, yes. Any other um, sports you're into besides baseball? Uh, that's my main one, but I, I sort of follow the other ones, you know, kind of casually. Before the Met, before you worked there, we're going to get to that, you worked for the New Yorker. That's, and you worked there as a young dude. That's like working for Sports Illustrated at ESPN at such a young age. Did you appreciate how, how cool it is to work for the New Yorker or not really? I did, yeah. Okay. I, I did, and, and to an extent, I think that's a dangerous thing to be aware of because I was 22 years old, and I had this job, and it wasn't a writing job. I worked in their events office, but still you're interacting with the writers and these people, and it can make you feel like, oh, I've made it. Yeah, right. You know, I've made it. Whereas the reality is, you're 22 years old. If you want to be a writer, like what? You haven't thought any thoughts. You haven't seen any life. You have no. Not only do you not have chops, but you just don't kind of have substance to who you are as a person. So, I think I had this idea in my mind. You know, oh, I'm gonna start writing these unsigned little book reviews, and then I'll move on to talk of the town pieces, and then I'll bust out with yeah, some yeah, brilliant yeah. profile or something. But. I don't know. I don't. I, some people do work that trajectory, yeah. but I don't know if it's the best trajectory. I mean, for me, I think it was it was more worthwhile to 
go out into the world and kind of do do something that you have to write about rather than just be a professional writer cranking out internet copy or whatever. I don't think that that would have allowed my sort of brain to spread its wings. And also, I wasn't good at it. Okay, I was going to say, who would you model your writing after? Is there a person or an author you wrote you model after or not really? I don't know. I mean, to some extent, I, I modeled it... Uh, when it comes to books that are about art, I think I was motivated to write this book precisely because there weren't other books like mine. There sort of weren't books that are from a subjective point of view that are about the experience of art that take this museum and what is it to be inside this place? What drives us here? What is the mystery? What is the charisma? What is How are we going to wrap our mind around the fact that this world is so big and so old? And that's kind of what interests me about museums. But I would always go and look at art books, and they tended to be written by scholars, mm-hmm. and they tended to be about you know uh, Rembrandt's influences and and uh, who his followers were, and uh, what his you know financial and artistic circumstances, you know, all these sort of footnotes that are very 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 interesting. Uh-huh. But aren't really the crux of like what draws us to Rembrandt? Like what what is That's that? That's interesting. Um, so, yeah, of course, I have writers I love. I, I love Joseph Mitchell, the great New York writer. Mm-hmm. I love uh, Orwell. I, I, I would read these things that have a nice sort of clean voice to have in my head while I was writing the book. Um, but I, I didn't model it precisely after any other book. Have you seen anyone reading your book in public yet? No, I, 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 that's the, I want to, of course. Well, oh, you want to see it on the train is what you want to oh, see. Okay, it. so now I I've seen people buying it. Because I've been in a bookstore and okay. I've seen someone buying it. And That's did, the closest. Did you approach them? I did. <laughs> okay, no, good. Because it's funny because I have on a lot of authors. Authors, like I have a ton of yeah. athletes, but a lot of authors on. And I'm like, hey, the first time you ever saw someone reading your book. And I love hearing it. Like, not yet, not yet. But so you saw someone reading it. And what would you do? You went up to them? Oh, yeah. Well, just I saw someone buying it. Okay, what you say? Like, I was like, just so you know, man, I, I wrote that book. And it's like, oh, that's so cool. Um, yeah, I've had that, uh, which, which is, I don't know. It, it it feels cool, but I, awesome. I look around on the train. But so many people these days, With Kindles and stuff, Kindles too. and stuff. So that is why. So if someone reads a book, you're going up to them. You know, one thing I did, which was cool. Tell me, um, tell me. I was I got to travel with the book to England, mm-hmm. and I was in um, uh, Canterbury and uh, with my family, and we stopped at a library to just kill a little time. The, li- the library in Canterbury, and I thought, oh, let me put my name in the the register here, and I put my name in the computer catalog, and sure enough, my book was there, and it was on the hold shelf. So I wrote a little note and I slipped it in the thing because I wow. just thought someone would get a big kick out of that. And someone did get a big kick and out did of it. they write to you? She wrote to me, particularly because both her parents were art historians. Her father was, in fact, somewhat of a famous art historian, although also a very difficult man. She had lost a daughter um, and just felt very connected with the messages in the book. And she felt, she said she opened, she got wow. the book. She lives in rural Kent. And she got the book in the Canterbury Library. And she opened it up and a note fluttered out. And she said she felt like, it was magical. Whoa. So that that's really very, cool. very, very special. Don't be humble now. When did you know you had a hit? Um, you, you were on a lot of TV shows. You were on NPR. You were kind of all over the place. You, your book's worldwide. When did you know, like, holy crap, this just hit? Uh, I, I think, I don't know. I mean, you know, obviously everything's relative. Like, it, it's it's done well. It could, of course, do a lot better. So I think when you're when in those kind of first week and I, I just felt nervous all the time because you're sort of looking around. You're like, oh, oh, the New York Times reviewed it. Great. You just feel like more relief than anything else. And you're like, oh, is the Wall Street Journal going to review it? You're just kind of your brain is is in this sort of hectic state where you're not able to just be grateful. And then I think, thankfully, I got out of that as soon as it was sort of birthed into the world. Okay. And then you realize at that point, you know, like the work, the main work's done. Everything I do from now on is just gravy. The book is going to do what it does. I'll do make some appearances and it'll help here and there on the margins, mm-hmm. but mostly it's out in the world. And I think at that point I was able to relax. I mean, I, I've gotten a lot of very nice notes from people. And I think that those really hit because there's something, you know, when you're dealing with people that are writing reviews or something, mm-hmm. you know, there's always a little level of artifice there. They're sort of writing it for their boss, sort mm-hmm. of writing it for themselves, blah, blah, blah. You don't kind of know what the what the honest bedrock truth of what they think of the book is. 
But when you get a letter from, you know, I got a letter from an 87-year-old woman. Um, I got a letter from another woman who, who told me that she's lost her eyesight. She's oh quite God. old. And she, before she lost her eyesight, she loved museums. And she listened to my audiobook And she felt like it transported her back to museums. And I think all those things have made me feel like, wow, there are honest-to-God strangers. I was stoked. Uh, so I saw your book. I think it was on a, maybe Good Morning America or something. It, it was on in the office. I'm like, oh, what kind of book is this? I'm like, oh, I'm not an art guy. Now, I'm a huge traveler. I'm trying to visit every country in the world. So obviously, everywhere I go, I'm going to museums. If there's a cool piece of art, I get it. I, I like a cool piece of art. I read your book, not being an art guy. You know, I've been to the Met. Fascinated by the book. I really couldn't put it down. I know you, you hear that. I'm not an art guy, and yet I loved your book. It was that good of a book because it tied in so many things. It was like your personal journey. Um, dealing with with your brother which i want to talk about like you put yourself really out there was it therapeutic also to write this book for you yeah i mean i think it was more therapeutic to think the thoughts and have the experience okay Uh, to some extent writing the book was a sort of taking all of this thinking i've been doing taking all of these notes that i've been making all these sort of experiences i was having inside the museum and you know, crystallizing it into this book, which in some ways it was therapeutic for sure, but in some ways it's just a pure pain in the ass. Like <laughs> it's so hard to write a book. It's so hard. And you just to, you know, paragraph after paragraph have oh. to be, you know, crafted in such a way that it's pushing the, the narrative forward and the several strands of the narrative. It's very difficult to do. Um, but the whole experience, I mean, absolutely. Uh, you, you always circle back around to your brother, Tom. What, what exactly did he have in his illness and stuff? Sure. So he had what's called a soft tissue sarcoma, which is a type of cancer. Um, he got it when, I guess, he was 24, 20, 23, 24 years old. Um, he was ill for just under three years. Um, and, yeah, I mean, he was a remarkable guy. He um, was uh, brilliant at math. He had moved to New York City because he was going to Courant, which is the... Um, NYU's graduate school mm-hmm. in math uh, for applied mathematics. So he studied biomathematics. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's actually pretty amazing. I have back home his um, his the notes for his dissertation on a and, new, on a different level than right. Yeah, because he so he would write. He I can picture him. You know, he's a lefty. He chewed his pens and he would just <laughs> oh, write on these. Um, just white pieces of computer paper um, in pen, and he's just writing math equations, just like you or I would write a diary, just Greek, you know, page after page of this stuff. You know, he's just working out problems in his head. But what's remarkable is you look at those those sheets of paper, that somehow has to do with the way that fluids are pumped within cells, you know, at microscopic levels. Um, and it, yeah, it is amazing. So it was while I was at The New Yorker that um, Tom got ill, and um, because he was in New York, I got to spend all this time with him. And, you know, all of a sudden I was leaving the fancy offices at 42nd Street and Broadway. And I was spending time at Beth Israel Hospital and Tom's, you know, one bedroom apartment in Queens. And I think it became very clear to me that very momentous things were happening in these sort of quiet little rooms that in some ways seemed to totally overshadow what my ambitions were kind of at the New Yorker. Something began to feel very silly about this office life. Something very silly even about like trying to write this sort of sophisticated, you know, in this sort of (laughs) high-toned way about art because, or whatever I wanted to write about, because I think in those hospital rooms, it seemed like, it's like, this is the bedrock. Like, the, you know, when you're looking at a, a painting of the Passion, some 15th century, 14th century painting, you know, of, of Christ on the cross or something like that, like, they are trying to describe what's happening right here, you know? Like, in some ways, we think of those works of art as high and above us, and they're so old and they're so majestic. But sometimes when you're in these experiences in your life, you're like, well, this is it. I mean, this is the Passion right here. And I think it it motivated me to want to um, think about the world. Um, and Tom also was a very sort of, you know, very mellow, straightforward kind of a guy in this kind of straightforward kind of way. And I had this urge to do something that was honest and straightforward, like be a guard at the Met and kind of just be able to think my own thoughts about this stuff on my own time. You said you wanted a straightforward job. You wanted a very, I, I want an easy job because it's so similar 
you describing working at the Met is so similar to a police officer. The lingo, foot posts, and, and this, and going to meal. It, it was so – uniforms. It was like, oh, my God, this guy's a cop. Yeah, it was, oh, cool, it, cool, it yeah. Was so, it was so uh, relatable. What, um, what else was your backup plan? Because you said you wanted a straightforward job. What happens, what happens if you didn't get a job at the Met? Did you have a straightforward job? I actually applied. I don't think oh. I said this in the book. I applied for two jobs. I applied to be a train conductor, too, um, okay. like Amtrak. So I love Amtrak trains. Okay. Um, but I don't know. I didn't really have a great, a great plan, really. I was just I was looking around for... But I knew I wanted that job at the Met. Um, I had known someone who was a guard before, an old job I had, he had had in the past, um, which sort of put it in my mind. But also just was in my mind because I had visited that museum many times and you just see the guys hanging out there and the girls hanging out there. Yeah. Just thinking, man, I, I, I could do that. So we talked about the name of the book. Give a quick synopsis of the book. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I start right inside the Met. Um, with just being trained on the first day, I had this this absolutely uh, larger than life woman from Finland. I call her Ada in the book, who trained me. Um, and you're just in the bowels of the Met, and you're seeing where they have little signs that say um, "Yield to Art and Transit," and the crates are piled up, and uh, there's conservation studios, and there's uh, you know a wood shop and a plexiglass shop and an armory, and there's a locker room for 500 security guards. I mean, that's how big the Met is. It's a 12-acre building that 500 guards are posted inside. Um, so. Uh, then through the, I, I do cutbacks to explain kind of how I got there mm -hmm. as, as I'm explaining to you right now. But sort of the trajectory of the book is in part an exploration of this place. I start in the old master paintings wing as my home section. Um, I eventually am all over the place. I'm in Egypt and I'm in Rome and I'm in Islamic wing and I'm in modern wing and everything else. And there's this just unbelievable sense of I don't know, feeling infinitesimally small compared to this. And I found that to be very therapeutic. I like feeling small. I mean, this is one uh -huh. of the reasons I live in New York City. Like, I, I like feeling alone in a crowd. I like feeling like, you know, wow. You know, whatever my, my little thoughts in my head are, they're so much smaller compared to everything wow. that's pulsing around this place. But I think at some point, and I was also kind of dumbstruck in a way by, by what I just experienced. I found great resonance with, as I mentioned, these old master paintings of the passion and things like that. These paintings that are about adoration and lamentation felt kind of sadly luminous to me in a way that I felt like really, I don't know, jibed with how I felt about things and getting to be silent in their presence was so wonderful. But I think as the book goes on, I also... I open up because I was there for 10 years mm -hmm. and I become very interested too in how the place works and in mixing it up with all the visitors who come in and mixing it up with all my fellow guards. So it's a cool thing because, you know, they come from every country you can imagine, every background you can imagine. What was their response to the book, the guards? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I've had very good responses. Yeah, right. It's been nice. I got to do an event there, which was really cool. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, the, the, the guards that appear in the book a lot, I've had conversations with them and some of them I still get together with and yeah, no, everyone's been very kind. How, how far along into your tenure of working there do you like, this might be a book. I might have something always in the back of your mind. Not always. No, I, I mean, I've always written, I always, you know, scribbled poetry and stuff since I was a kid. Um, so I definitely had a sense that I wanted to write about art in some sense, but like at first I didn't know what I was doing. So I guess I did try to, I don't know, when a new show was in town, I was like, maybe I could write a, a review of this from a guard's perspective or something okay, like okay. that. And then that morphed eventually maybe five or six years in, I thought, you know, maybe I should try to write a guard's guide to the Met. It probably wasn't until, you know, seven years in or something that I really thought, you know, as I was saying earlier, the kind of book that has yet to be written is a book that is about the subjective experience of this stuff. And in order to talk about that, I would have to talk about the subject. And of course, mm -hmm. that's me. Yeah. And I was thinking, well, you know, this is going to have to be a memoir and I'm going to have to fold in this whole story of how I got here and everything else. Um, yeah. Give me a typical day for you at the Met. Because I'll tell you one thing that really fascinated me with the, the way you talked about it is, you know, I'll relate it back to policing. If you're a veteran, you, you get a good post. You, hey, I want that post. You got it. When you're the rookie, you get kind of crappy posts. But every day you guys got different posts. And you kind of like, 
You not that people want. There's no crappy post. Well, I guess there could be, but it wasn't really based on seniority. Every day is something different too, right? Yeah, it's funny. Seniority. So you get better vacation if you've got seniority. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that's for sure true. But um, yeah, it's funny. Some of the real old timers, the dispatch office will let them go wherever they want. Of course. So, so you know they know that this guy likes that. Um, but most people, they are moving quite a bit. Um, and what's a good post versus a not good post has a lot to do with your personality. Um, because some, you know, say you like having to tell people not to touch stuff and you like dealing with noise and sort of hoopla, then maybe you want Egyptian art because that's where all the kids are, you know? But say you are a very kind of dignified, you know, withdrawn sort of person and you like things to be very civil, then maybe you love Asian art. Maybe you love Islamic art. Those are two, you know, very grown up civil kind of places. You also notice a little things like Asian art is extremely quiet because the lights are low. And you notice just psychologically when people walk into galleries that are sort of dark with the art just spotlit, they immediately start to whisper. You know, it's just something in our being that wants to whisper. That's pretty interesting. Um, So, yeah, I liked working a variety of things. Um, So I, you know, of course, sometimes I would go, oh, man. And there are some posts like we'll get put in the main hall, which meant you can be put in the coat check. You can be put, you know, pawn through people's bags looking for tuna fish sandwiches, you know, as they come in. And uh, generally, I didn't like that. But then on the other hand, if you're working in the main hall, sometimes you're working a post called checkpoints where you're just um, watching the people come in, making sure they have their ticket. It used to be those little tin buttons. Yes, yes, yes. And, but what that meant in practice is you were just having an eight or 12 hour long conversation with the person standing next to you. And unlike being a cop, you don't have a regular partner. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure the cops must just be sick to death of talking to their partner. What, so the, you got someone new like, whoa, new meat. Yes. The beauty of this is that there, if there are 500 guards, that means you don't know nearly everybody. Yeah. You know, so plenty of times you say, I've seen you around a hundred times. I'm Patrick. You know, you've worked together for years, but you just, for whatever reason, haven't been right next to each other. And you could talk, if it's an old timer, maybe you'll talk for 12 hours mm-hmm. on, the, on points that day, and he won't ask you your name, you know? But you still learn that he's from Azerbaijan and the whole sort of story behind him. I love how, uh, again, one last thing about uh, the comparison with cops is you like, if you tell some, a, r- a random person, random civilian, like, hey, eight hours, you got to stand on foot over there, you're like, what? But yet, when you go there mentally prepared, like, yeah, bro, I'm eight hours stand on foot. Like, when, when you mentally put it in your head, like, I'm here goes pretty fast like people we have surveillance for eight hours like we have to sit in a car and stare at a house for eight hours but when you go there knowing yeah bro next eight hours we're here when you're readily locked in like today's gonna suck or eight hours we're here you're mentally okay right that's exactly right like i i always say you know so if you're waiting in line at the post office and you're like 15th in line even though you have to wait for 30 minutes, it feels just interminable. It's just like, oh my God, because you see the finish line and you just want the finish line to go there. But if you work a job, like you say, if you work a job where you know the next eight hours, I'm gonna do essentially nothing. Mm -hmm. As a guard, you're sort of professionally a doer of nothing. Um, Then you have a different wavelength to your mind, a different sort of rhythm. Because you're not sort of, you know you can't kill that time. That time is unkillable. Yeah. So you just sort of have to make peace with you the accept time. It. You have to accept it. And you learn how to do that. And of course, occasionally you have days where you don't and you're hankering to get home or whatever. But for the most part, yes, I, I felt that the hours felt very capacious in sort of a good way. I, my mind could wander. I could, you know, learn about the art. I could talk to the, the tourists, whatever. You, you had the reader uh, wanting more of random stuff like, Obviously, we knew there was lockers there, but now you're talking about like, it's like a dungeon under there with just random rooms and Johnny Buttons. You have your own tailor there. You have rooms that you've probably never gone into. Curators, do you have interactions with those people at the curators? Do they come out and ask you like, hey, what do you think about this? Because you guys are kind of the experts out there on the feet. Do they even talk to you guys? Very rarely. Which is surprising, isn't it? Yeah, they should. They should for sure. I mean, hopefully maybe this book will make a few inroads. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think partially because it's so big. Um, curators wouldn't really know how to begin in getting to know the guards, you know. So it's it's defensible to one extent, but like you said, to another extent, I mean, we know stuff that they don't know. Of course, you, that's your job. You're out there ten, twelve hours. Uh, one example I like to use is, you know, maybe the most famous painting in the Met is Washington Cross in the Delaware, at least in terms of kind of popular cachet. Mm-hmm. And on the Washington Cross in the Delaware label 
it says that the frame is a reproduction. Now people go up to that label and they quickly scan it as people do and they see the word reproduction and they go back to their kids and they say, oh, it's a reproduction. And then I have to step in and go, no, it's not a reproduction. But anyway, the, the curator's got to know you don't put the word reproduction ever on, on a, especially on a famous paintings label. Do not use that word. Um, it's just, that's an example. But there's, there's all sorts of examples like that, I think. Um, not to mention that I think on a more profound level, what the guards represent is just a huge uh, variety of minds, variety of backgrounds, variety of cultures, variety of kind of ways that they hold themselves and talk to one another. And, and all of those varieties of minds have something to say about art. Because art is not something like engineering or rocket science where only a narrow band of elites have, have an expertise in it. Because what's art? Art is things that are beautiful and that are meaningful and that fit, tell us something about life and death and gods and the cosmos and everything else. And of course, there's a discipline called art history mm -hmm. that is very, you know, precise and scholarly. And you got to know, you got to have your PhD or whatever to sift through this complicated discipline. But as far as what matters about arts and how we interpret this stuff and how we judge this stuff, I, I think more types of minds need to be brought to bear on that project than just people who have PhDs from Princeton, you know? What else is down there in those labyrinths of hallways, like different rooms and stuff? You said like there's like a random, you said there'd be like random boxes. You don't even know what was in it. So what are in some of those rooms down there? Just other pieces of art, other sculptures and stuff? Yeah. So the I think I said the Met step, it sits on 12 acres of Central Park. And just as big as it is above on two levels, it's that big below. So it has, like you say, these just labyrinths down there. And the Met, uh, I don't, for whatever reason, tries to do as much as they can in-house. Mm -hmm. So they have a wood shop and a plexiglass shop. They have printers that print, you know, the museum maps. They have uh, an armory. Uh, so when medieval armor, you know, goes on the fritz and uh, a, something has to be, they've got a forge that is able to do some of that stuff. And then, yeah, they've got storage facilities, conservation studios. So it's like a self-sustained universe down yeah, there, right? Yeah, there's 2,000 people work at the Met. So in a lot of ways, it's it's more like a university than it is like just, you know, I don't know, like a, I don't know, than just a museum. Yeah. Um, so yeah, almost, uh, you know, a tiny fraction of those places I've been inside. And I don't have the best sense of direction either. So I, <laughs> I would very often not know quite where I was. And then I would just poke into the galleries. Because once I got in the galleries, I would know where I was. But I'd poke out and I'm like, oh my God, we're by the, you know, ancient African art like or, or the ancient American art what the heck is going on here you uh you actually said like oh we actually downplayed security guys like oh we're just standing there in the corner obviously shit can happen things can definitely happen on your watch did anything happen like any kind of stealing of anything or did you ever catch anyone trying to steal or do anything like you know nefarious or no so you catch I mean people are touching stuff like crazy of Th course that has to blow that has to piss you off and because I'll use examples from like, you know, different cops. If you're on a crime scene, like, hey, you can look, just don't step over that. Sir, please don't touch the car. Sir, they just dusted the car. Don't touch it. Don't. How many times did you have to deal with that? Like, I can't even imagine Egyptian art. Like, what, when you said Egyptian, I'm like, oh, everybody must be touching it. Of course. It. I mean, no. So, one, one thing about Egyptian art, though, all that stuff is made out of granite or most of it. It's thousands of years old. They're not going to hurt it. <laughs> so, like, you, yes, you tell people that you don't touch because it's not a good sort of precedent. But, you know, it, they couldn't hurt it with a baseball bat. Yeah. It's not something that's sort of high priority. Obviously, you're mm -hmm. more concerned about things that are delicate, like paintings. Mm -hmm. um, people are pretty good on the whole about not touching paintings. But not. not I can picture in my mind right now uh, a gentleman who... He, with a rolled up map, he was looking at a big crucifixion and with a rolled up map, he just smacked on each of the three nails. He was just talking to his friend about, I don't know, something about the nails or whatever. So he went thwap, thwap, thwap <laughs> before I could get there. Well, like, who does that? <laughs> but I mean, so the question, the question of who does that is interesting. So the Met gets on a busy day. Sometimes it can get 30,000 people in it. So if you figure, if you get 30,000 wow. people coming through this place, it gets 7 million people a year. It gets more than the Mets and the Jets and the Yankees and everybody else combined, all the sports teams combined. So you figure when you get that volume of people, if only one in a thousand people is a screwball, that means you're going to have 30 screwballs on in, a busy in day. one day. Oh yeah. So like just the numbers are with you that you're going to get screwballs now and again. Um, 
But some people don't know. Lots of people don't know. Because one of the most question, common questions you get is, is this real? So people will walk in and they don't know that this stuff's precious. They don't know what's going on. They don't know if we have dinosaurs, if we have the yeah, Mona Lisa. Yeah. They don't know. Um, which never bothers me. There's plenty of put things that I don't know about, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, to answer your question about things that happen, yeah, I mean, there's art damage, significant art damage has happened when I was there. No thefts have happened since 1983. Wait, which surprises me. Yeah. Like, you would think someone's, like, going to take a chance. People rob banks where there's millions of cameras on their face. They don't give a crap. I know. And yet, in the art thing, like... I have thought about that. I mean, I think to some extent, you know, the people who rob stuff, they're not the most uh, culture yeah. mavens, yeah. you know? So maybe it doesn't occur. It also, I think it just feels like so much the big leagues to people, um, which it is the big leagues. Oh, because, yeah. It really That's the major majors, yeah. you would go away for a long time. And the thing that prevents art theft is, is partially us guys standing around, and then it's also all the cameras and alarms. Mm-hmm. But it's also how are you going to fence anything? So there were thefts in 79, 80, and 81. At the Met. At the Met. Okay. Uh, but in all cases, uh, well, should I tell these stories? You interested? Well, I just tell one because I, I don't want to tell uh, too many stories. Yeah, yeah like sure. somewhere in the, I know you talked about the one in the book in Boston and stuff. So give me a good one, though. A good one. So in 79, um, the King Todd exhibit was in town. And uh, a guard turned around. So it was the biggest exhibit Matt ever had. Ho- tons of hoopla. And a guard turned around a Greek and Roman. And he noticed an empty pedestal. And uh, a Hermes head was missing. A little ancient head of Hermes. Greek head. Classical Greece. And um, they put on APB. It was on the front page of the New York Times. Then um, a few days later, on February 14th, 1979, a call came in to, curiously, the security desk at 30 Rockefeller Plaza. And an anonymous tipster told the guys at NBC there, he said, if you want to find that Hermes head, you should look in locker 5514 at Grand Central Terminal. So a couple detectives from Midtown South Precinct went to Grand Central Terminal, and they pried the thing open, and they moved an old bed sheet aside, and sure enough, here's the head of Hermes staring with his deathless eyes right back at them. But that's not the crazy part of the story. So the old timer told me the story. I didn't even believe him, but I looked it up and it's, it's all true. Used to be that the Hermes head had a heart-shaped carving or maybe just indentation above its left eye. Okay. When it maybe happened centuries ago, when it was recovered, it had a freshly carved heart matching symmetrically above the other eye. And remember, this was February 14th. So my theory of the case, I think this old timer's theory, I think a common theory, because it was never solved, was that um, a guy was wandering through the Met. He noticed this heart. He didn't have a gift for his girl for Valentine's Day. He swiped the thing. She (laughs) opened it on February 14th, said, what in the hell are you doing? Are you insane? And they called him. She probably saw it in the papers. Yeah. Yeah. And they called him to tip themselves. He gets arrested? Uh, No. Never solved. Never solved. Come on. Yeah. Never solved that case. The, the, wow. Another theory, another theory is that maybe it was some sort of like art happening, you know, some sort of contemporary art happening or something, but no one, no one ever claimed credit for it. Wow. Yeah. So some, you know, it's funny. The girl knows, the dude knows, and it was unsolved. Wow. Unsolved. So the last um, death was in the eighties. Yeah. That kind of blows my mind a little bit. Yeah. yeah. You, know, you know, you're always thinking. Anyone who goes to museums, we think we can have, you know, with the perfect criminals, like hang out in the bathroom. Till the museums close, like that's that's the thing you think of. But again, yeah. how are you getting this? Well, stuff there's out? night there's night guards too, you know. So it's not like it's not like the place clears out. Uh, but yeah, there have been a lot of art thefts, you know, uh, internationally. Uh, art does get stolen. Um, I think it it gets used as as um, sort of collateral for high end drug deals sometimes because it's very easy to roll up a canvas and move it across borders. Mm-hmm. So like even though if you don't, it, in some ways. A Rembrandt doesn't have a lot of value because it's hard to sell. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's still a Rembrandt, so it's kind of a cool thing. So. I, I guess because it's like when, I, when you go to the Hall of Fame. You ever go to the Hall of Fame? Uh, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah oh, sure, sure. When you're there, I don't care who you are. You think of like, oh, my God, I want to steal this 1932 World Series ticket stub when Babe Ruth called his shot. I want to steal a jersey. Then after like, where am I selling this? There's yeah. one in existence. Where you, so if someone steals a piece of art, where are you bringing it? Yeah. You can have it in your house, but no one's going to be like, yeah, I'm sure that's a real Rembrandt, bro. I'll, nope. I'll, very briefly, I'll have to tell this. So in 1980s, Don't some, be brief. A, couple, this is crazy. Yeah. a couple teenagers were in the, um, the, the um, Egyptian wing, 
and they noticed a flaw in a display case and they went home and they got a clothes hanger and they came back and they knocked Ramses the sixth ring onto a map that they had slid under the plexiglass and they slid it out and they took the ring and popped it in one of their mouths and they walked straight out the door and they walked straight to a jeweler on Lexington Avenue and they said, hey, look what we got. And the jeweler obviously knew something was up, but rather than call the cops, he paid them five grand for it and he called the Met. And he said, hey, I got, anonymously, and he said, hey, I got your ring, and if you could put $80,000 together, maybe I could find my way to getting this back to you. The Met said, okay, bub, and they called the cops and set up a sting, of and course. they were all arrested up and down the line. Did they get the kids also? Yeah, they got everybody, yeah. So, yeah, exactly. How are you going to fence this stuff is a big one. The FBI has a whole art crime unit, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah, which I found out about after your book. Okay. Because then you put me down a rabbit hole of art thefts. Yeah. And I'm like, here's my thing. If someone comes to the priest and like, hey, man, um, they just stole this. It's worth $2.5 million. What? But right away, art has to go right to the FBI. They have a whole unit that yeah. they went to school for all this stuff. That's, that's craziness. Yes, yes, yes. But yeah, and then it's also a credit to all of us. I mean, we're, we're all yeah. standing around. Well, I was going to say, yeah. as a joke, we, you downplayed it. Oh, I, I, I do nothing. If you're not there, someone's stealing shit. See, so, it's, it's, it's doing nothing, but it's a useful form of nothing. What, by, by doing nothing, I mean that you know, on most jobs, you have your head down you are working on some project you're advancing some you're working on a case you're looking through paperwork whatever it is it's the job of us and i guess some some foot patrol people too to just be aware of your surroundings to just have your head up Mm -hmm. to have your hands empty and just to be kind of out of that rat race wheel just to be seeing what's happening moment to moment in the present and i found that to be remarkably sort of freeing Sometimes you kind of look around and it feels like everyone else is on. Everyone else is somewhere to go. You know, a curator comes, he just races by you because he's going off to his office mm-hmm. to go study something. And you're like, I'm the only one who's just existing in the, in the present. Moment. Yeah. Just watching this art on the wall, watching these people having conversations. It felt magical. Nothing's better than hanging out in an airport and people watching. And you got to do that with a hell of a backdrop. You know, your backdrop yeah. wasn't just, uh, you know, an airplane. Your backdrop was some of the greatest pieces of art. And you... Throughout the book, you described how you really appreciated it during it. You know, I, Derek Jeter always said his biggest regret was um, he didn't appreciate the moment as it was happening. During your time there, the 10 years, you really appreciated how cool your job was. I did. I mean, you, when you have so much time, you have enough time to feel a lot of different ways about it. Uh-huh. So, of course, sometimes, you know, you're just thinking about whatever you're thinking about in your head. But I do love art, and some of that stuff is just absolutely magnificent. Um, and you, you would turn a corner, and you'd see some of this stuff, and then you would think, my job today is to spend eight hours just with this stuff. And without a doubt, I felt very privileged. I felt privileged to be with my, my fellow guards, too, who had such kind of rich stories and just be able to chew the fat with them all day. Um, yeah, I loved it. <clears throat> You were there for 10 years. What changed the most in the Met in 10 years? You know, very little changed. I mean, I, think, I like to hear that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think it's institutions. What, so there's no reason to change. I mean, one thing I said in the book is that, you know, to, to some extent, after 10 years, art that's thousands of years old is just a thousand years old. It's just a thousand years old plus 10. You know, it's like it doesn't make any difference to the art. Um, and some things changed, of course, personnel changed, mm-hmm. people retired. Um, we got some, you know, at the beginning there were just phones in the wall everywhere. Then we got radios, then we got radios with those little, you know, earpieces right at the end. But I don't even know if they're doing that right now. Sort of secret service style yeah, earpiece. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, they're always installing more cameras and alarms and stuff, but the, the basic feel of the Mets, the basic sort of what you do there, um, having this personal one-on-one experience with these things i mean it's it's the same as it was hundreds of years ago i think and 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 back to you because the book is about you how'd you change in 10 years through your 10 years as a rookie to a veteran there what how'd you change i mean i I, by contrast i changed in every way because i when i started i was 25 you know i think they were baby yeah i mean i think the years in some ways, the book is sort of a coming of age into honest-to-God adulthood. It's not a coming of age into early adulthood. It's, but when you're 25 years old, you're still trying to be cool. You're looking around, trying to sort of figure out how to have your, your feet under you at all. And then I had had this experience that I think made me feel very sort of quiet and watchful. And I took this very sort of quiet and watchful job. And I think over the span of the 10 years, though, I, 
I learned sort of who I was, the kind of how I talked to people, the cadence with which I spoke to strangers to make little jokes with them, you know, what my voice was, what my, what kind of what I was interested in. And, and I got to do it in a very place that nourished um, my own originality because I think that there was no one looking over my shoulder. You know, I was doing work in a sense in my mind, thinking through things, figuring out what I felt about all this stuff. And there was nobody to tell me like, hey, that's not, that's not right, you know? So I, I got to just kind of flourish in kind of any way that I wanted to. And then I had kids, yeah. you know, about six years into it, I had kids. So when you have kids, kids are so damn hard. And all of a sudden I was returning to a job where everything is, is very clean and very orderly. <laughs> and, and quiet, right? Quiet. And home is such a mess and such a, just, you know, a battle to get your kids in a bed and things like that. And that made me think differently and made me ultimately, I think, leave the job in a way in that, I don't know, I, I felt ready at some point through this experience to kind of get my hands dirty a little bit, to kind of get out in the world and try to build something of my own. One other question about uh, security guards. What's the biggest rookie mistake that you make there? Like veteran for a few years, you're not making mistakes. What's the biggest mistake rookie like guards make there? Yeah. Oh, it's interesting. I mean, a lot of it is learning how to do things with a light touch. I mean, learning not how to to de-escalate. I mean, of course, that's what you guys do, too, you know? Mm -hmm. But, like, if you come in hard with somebody, like, somebody is... If you come in as a 10, you can't lower it. Yeah, exactly. You know, if somebody's pointing too close to a picture, and you come in, and you're like, sir! You know, like, then he'll be like, I wasn't too close. And then all of a sudden, you got a little thing. Whereas if you're, like, not so close, in in some ways, you just do it in a bored way and then disengage from it. But little things like that. There there are also funny things, Mm -hmm. like... The, the Met uses these heavy iron stanchions that are at least like 50 years old. And if you ever see someone carrying one of those stanchions, that's a rookie. You know, you got to roll the stanchion along the floor. And the a veteran can roll two of those stanchions along the floor. Um, do little things like that, I suppose. Your last day at the Met bothered me. I, um, and it's here. Like today, actually, my, one of my close friends retired. Oh my God, bro. Like, and it was just like, all right, he left. All right, dude, like business as usual. So as I'm reading the book, you get to read is so invested in your life, your career. You have kids now. You're wrapping up your time. It's like, all right, like you're it. That, is it a, was it a weird day your last day? Because you changed. Like you said, 25, 35. You went in there as a single dude maybe. Now you're a married father. Like so much changed. Your whole life changed in that book. Your last day, was it weird for you? It was. Oh, sure. I mean, the, my last day, the, the chief just told me, uh, you know, just walk around, do whatever you want. Um, you don't have to have a post today. So I just went around and was just talking to my buddies, giving them what they, we call personals when you give them 10 mm-hmm. minutes to go to the bathroom. And uh, um, but, yeah, I mean, I was very aware at one point I, I gave my my buddy, I call him Joseph in the book, a personal and I'm standing in his galleries and I'm thinking to myself like this is. One of the last times I'll be doing this with nowhere to go, you know? The next time I come to the Met and I visit a Van Gogh exhibit or something, I'm just going to be one of these guys. I'll, I will spend a finite an hour and a half, That's you weird, know, two right? hours, and I'll just be a civilian in our sense, you know? I won't have this excuse to just be in this place with this art, with these people, with, like, no pre- outside pressures. Because what I've been doing for the last couple years, you know, in writing the book and promoting the book couldn't be more different. It's like I'm writing emails. I'm trying to get people to pay attention to me. I'm trying to, you know, even it's very like, you know, whereas being a guard, there's something so beautifully Zen and sort of on your back heels about it. Um, And I'm very aware, even when I go now of what I sort of gave up. How different was it the first time you went back there as a civilian? Well, I, I, the first time I went back there was probably like the following week or something. I, <laughs> I, I still go a lot. I go a lot because I also I knew I was going to write the book at some point, and I'm I'm seeing buddies and things. So I, it's not that that strange in that sense. It's funny now because now I'm like known a little bit to like volunteers and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So I kind of have lost my anonymity. So that's another thing you sort of lose. But um, but uh. Not that, you know, I don't want to overstate that, but I can still be anonymous. But, uh, but yeah, I don't know. It's different. What was it about the harvesters? I don't want to go through every painting, 
that just spoke to you? Because you talked about it a lot in the book. Yeah. So this is this brilliant 16th century painting, Dutch painting by Peter Bruegel. Um, and it is a big landscape. It maybe is the first true landscape in the history of Western art, meaning it's not a painting of a landscape that's just serving as the background for a religious subject in the foreground. Rather, it's just a painting of of the landscape. It, the background is the foreground. It's just a painting of the world that Bruegel saw around him. And it feels like just a window because it's brilliantly painted with this golden, you know, golden sweep of, of the grain and then these rolling green hills. And it's under this hot August sky and it stretches all the way back to this harbor where you see these ships that are ready to go off to port. And it just feels like this huge kind of glimmering world inside those galleries. But then if you trace the path down and you see the men mowing the fields and the women are bundling up the grain. And then in the foreground of the picture, you have these nine peasants who have broken from the day's labor to have a meal and conk out underneath this pear tree. And I don't know, something that they're so sympathetic, they're so human, they obviously are working hard. It feels like, I don't know, there's something about all of us just live with the people we love in the foreground as this vast world spreads out around us, but we are living our little lives, you know, and it just feels like a painting of everything. And it's also just, it's, it's one of these paintings too, that just doesn't exhaust. You can look at it on and on and it just blossoms. Back to your book. I read it on Kindle and it was a little interactive. It was a little different. Like you can, at the end, you can click on a link and you can see the actual real photo. There was drawings and stuff. Did you do the drawings? No. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the very, drawing, that was awesome, by the way. Like, yeah. Did, was that your idea or was it? It was my idea. Okay. Yeah, because we knew. So Maya McMahon did the drawings. She's she's a very talented artist. Cause Incredible. I, I felt that, um, you know, this is a very subjective book. And it's, it's kind of quiet and it's kind of lyrical. And if all of a sudden you had this color reproduction, it would feel sort of too literal. And also color reproductions often, you know, they, they let you down. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about how beautiful painting is. And if you're going to zoom it, in, see, yeah. you see it and you're like, eh, is that that beautiful? I don't know. Um, whereas I, what we did is we had a, an artist do sketches as you see people do in galleries. Um, and that they also have an evocative kind of subjective feeling to them. And we thought that that would that was fit sick. more with the it. book. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned earlier, and I, I skipped over it, you said that the lady who lost her eyesight was listening to the audio version. Did you do the audio version? I did, yeah. Did you, how was that process? Because I've had authors on who hate it and yeah. some who loved it. Did you like it? I did. I liked it. I enjoyed it. Okay. It was hard. Um, so the book's not that long. So it's, I think, I don't know, seven hours or something. And we did it in three uh, five-hour days. Okay. Um, so I, I, they told me that I did good. I didn't garble too much, I suppose. Um, I definitely, by the end of the day, I would be tired out, both my voice and my mind. So I would garble things like crazy toward the end of the day. But I, I enjoyed it. What was your writing process like? Did you have a schedule you, you stuck to? Or it was like every morning at blank or what? So I was very lucky to have an advance. So I didn't, I didn't have another job. So that was great. Perfect. Um, and I, um, it, the only thing that was terrible was it was right. I got my contract right before COVID. Um, and then we had to Zoom school our kids. Oh. <laughs> and that was awful. Zoom school was just the worst thing in the world because <laughs> they're, they're young kids. And, oh, my God, you just have to sit over them. So my wife and I had to have this, um, this you know, back and forth thing where they, she was on for a few hours. But, no, I wrote every day. Um, and, but writing is a funny thing. You know, sometimes I would work for five hours a day at least. But you're not just hardcore churning out paragraphs for mm-hmm. five hours a day. If you were, then you could write the whole thing in six weeks. Yeah. Um, but the reality is most of the time you don't have your A-game mind. And also you have to lay a lot of groundwork. So if I didn't have my sharpest mind, I would make sure that I was organizing notes and researching. I would make sure I would edit other things. I always was doing something. But I found that without a deadline and without pressures and without sort of structures, there's no way I could have wrote the book. What are you up to now? Obviously, people definitely asking you for tours. They have to be. Yeah, so I am giving tours. Um, that's a lot of fun. Uh, I do public tours just kind of once a month or so, and then I do some private tours. Um, so yeah, if anyone wants to check that out, just go to my website, patrickbringley.com. Um, otherwise, I'm doing a lot of talks too, which have been fun. Um, that's sort of picking up, going to museums and things. Um, and so I'm, I'm lucky that I'm just 
I want to just work part time doing mm -hmm. that sort of a thing and remain retain flexibility to write another book. That's my next question. Obviously, it's like getting a tattoo. You get one, you want to, you have the itch for another one. Do you have ideas for another book you want to do? Do you want to stay in the same genre? Do you want to? venture out what kind of I what do you have thinking? ideas they're okay. not quite ready for prime time but I, I think I know what my next book is going to be and it's, it's not quite art related um, it, it in some ways is similar because it's another sort of guy taking on a, a great big subject that he's not necessarily an expert on but on the other hand all of us and by virtue of being alive, are experts to some extent. You know, we all have to think through. So I don't know. That's that's very abstract. But I'm not going to say what it's about yet. But uh, I've got an idea. So we'll see. I know you didn't do the sketches and stuff. Are you an artist at all? Do you have any artistic skills? I don't. No, no. I I, um, I don't at all. Really. I I love looking at this stuff. I've I've tried. I do. I might write another art book in the future at some point. And I'm very interested in how art's made. And one of my piece of advice I would give to curators, um, if you, as you said, you know, what, what would they ask the guards maybe, um, is that people are very interested in how art's made and they have no idea. You know, I think curators take it for granted that people roughly know how an oil painting is made. No, no mm. one has any idea. No, zero idea. Zero idea. And uh, the Met did this exhibit called Unfinished, where it had all these kind of half-finished works. And people oh, that sounds, loved it. I was going to say, that sounds loved awesome. Because it. it was like seeing clocks that were broken open, and you see the gears The inside, inside of a baseball, there. the first time you ever saw the... Like, holy crap, there's stuff inside. Exactly right. And um, I, I think that that is a real way that people... It's a pathway into art, because it makes it very relatable. Because you might not care about, you know... 15th century Christian iconography, but you might care, you know something about what it is to make something well with a great deal, deal, deal of care and skill and diligence and, and, you know, and I think to me that, you know, I get to think about these big questions like what is art? Mm -hmm. And this isn't a total definition, but one definition I came up with is just something that is better than it has any right to be, you know? It's more beautiful, more delicate. So you're looking at something that it could it could just be done well enough. That's that lady's face. You know, mm -hmm. you did it as a portrait. But for some reason, there's something in humans that just gets better and better and better and better. And then cultures also just push, you know, iterate upon each other that all of a sudden you get way to the way beyond what you could have any reasonable right to expect in the brilliancy of a portrait. And that sort of gap there creates sort of a fluttering, an amazement. And I think that's where kind of art resides. You said again, like you were the little guy, you know, uh, and then you're doing all these TV shows. Were you nervous doing your initial like um, press for the book? You know, the only I I'm lucky in that I don't get nervous as long as I'm there's a person there. OK, I, I like talking to people. So even doing live TV, that didn't make me nervous. The only thing that makes me nervous is Zoom. I hate that. Why, though? Because I don't know. It's very inhuman. It feels very strange to me. So I've had to do radio interviews and, and things like that. Ra over. Oh, radio interviews are tough because I'm a big sports guy. So I've been on a few different sports shows from different teams I like. And you're waiting. Is the host done with the talk? You don't know because you, you're not looking at them. I hate radio interviews. They're difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Anything, anything over Zoom. Actually, the first time I give a talk over Zoom, I almost like had an existential crisis. So I'm giving a 90 minute long talk. I can't see anybody. Oh, it wasn't even a little thing. Oh, that's horrible. So I might as well have been staring into, into my bathroom wall. And like almost halfway through, I was like, is this really happening? Is this real life? Is, is this reality? <laughs> But now I'm kind of used to it. You just have to be an actor. You have to pretend people are laughing at your jokes. Let, two nights ago, I have a podcast and uh, with, with another author. He wrote a book uh, on the UFC. So he's like, oh, let's do it on Zoom. And he's located in Florida, I believe, or California. And we're doing it. And his, never my podcast is obviously audio only. But the video aspect makes it easier to converse. And his camera wasn't working. So I'm doing the podcast, like I said, looking at myself with my background. And to the left of me, it's just a black screen. And I, I don't know if he's laughing, but it was so worst. uncomfortable. It's and I, I'm like, oh, this is this is brutal. Last time you read a review. Oh, read a review? On your book. When's the last time you read it? Like, I read the reviews. I can't say that I'm too cool to read the reviews. I do. I read them. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't listen to myself on podcasts. I'm not going to listen to this because mm -hmm. that just makes me feel, I don't know, feel strange. Um, but, yeah, I, I do read them. I don't know. Yeah, it's. It, I, Have you ever I, replied to one? No. Okay, okay, okay. No, 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 no. Yeah. 
I'm actually I'm getting reviewed by um, the the Times Literary Supplement in London, okay. and I'm excited about that because I I want it to be a bad review. Well, I that that's it's a it's it's like really hoity-toity, like super scholarly and academic, okay. and I think it would just be so fun if like some scholar takes on my book and rips it and not rips it but is like condescending oh, you yeah. know this british scholar <laughs> is like this american security guard thinks he, so i would enjoy that and i would write a letter in because it's another they have these wonderful letter section where everyone's pissy with each other and like a really yeah. uh really this scholarly uh passive aggressive mode so i'm rooting for that i always ask this to everyone on my show i don't know if it falls into your category you and i are at a bar in new york city Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you back? You want to impress the bar? Oh, the coolest person in my phone. Like a name drop. Oh, my God. I don't know if I have anyone that cool. Oh, you know what? I'll, I'll tell you this this story. I have Jeff Wilpon in my phone. That's an awesome answer. <laughs> but but you know what? It, That's a great it, answer. He's not going to answer it, though. This is the story. Okay, I okay. Was in, I was in, uh, it was actually the last, Jose Reyes' last game where he got the batting title. He laid down a bunt, oh, and then place. he sat. Bush and, League right there. And, uh, and I was in an elevator, so it's, I don't know him. I was in an elevator with Jeff Wilpon, and he was on the phone, and he was using a phone that had um, his number written on it because nope. it must have been like a company phone so i just took out my phone i put that down and then i texted him uh that he needs to re-sign reyes no you didn't i know did. you didn't and i got this call i didn't notice it because it was during the game but i got this call that uh that it was someone being like hi um I, we saw that you uh reached out to mr wilpon and we were just wondering they wanted to know who the hell i was and how i got this number I'll be honest. I'm gonna tell you something. I've had three to four hundred guests. That's one of the coolest answers. People tell people have Jordan's phone number. OJ Simpson. I've got it in my phone. I, I that is a great. An- I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna be honest with you. That's one of the best answers I've heard. Oh uh, well, thank you. Well, thank you. That's a great answer. Ever meet someone famous at the museum? Oh yeah, lots of people. Yeah. Uh, uh, I one time I turned around. Somebody asked a question. I turned around. It was Michael Stipe looking at me. Um, oh wow! Uh, yeah, who else? Um, I met uh, Dr. Ruth was a memorable one. Okay, she was a lot of fun. She's yeah, she's she was you know she's yeah, four, yeah. <laughs> four feet tall or so. She was like two handsome young men were flanking her. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I saw Netanyahu and Giuliani and Clinton, both Clintons, and one time I and you I, guys can't take a picture with them or anything. No. Right? Yeah. One time I was uh, I was in a gallery and there were clearly Secret Service people in the gallery and I'm looking around. I'm like, who the heck are the Secret Service here people here for? And it was Malia Obama and I just hadn't noticed her because she's a kid, yeah. you know, um, at the time. Uh, so yeah, well, those are good answers. Yeah. All right, two more. Favorite, you're a Chicago guy, but you're a New Yorker now. Favorite New York City food spot? Favorite? Uh, I'll give you a somewhat obscure one. I love this this restaurant called Cash Car in Brighton Beach, which okay. is a Uyghur restaurant. So it's like the Muslims who live in the west of China mm-hmm. who are being very ill-treated right now. And it's uh, it's incredible food. Incredible little place. What's the name of it? It's called Cash Car. K-A-S-H-K-A-R. And it's a BYOB uh, place. Um, and they just have the most delicious lamb. They have the most delicious kebabs. They have like soup dumplings. It's just an amazing place. And really fi- small. And finally, I know you get this a lot. What's one tip you give to someone? Someone's like, hey, I'm going to the Met. You have to give them one tip. What is the tip you give them? So I, my advice, I think that the first thing you want to do is you just want to get lost. You know, the point of the Met to some extent, is that it's big and it's diverse. So yes, at some point you're gonna wanna go search for what you love, but I think at first, just wander. Because when you wander, and do it alone preferably, because you want to just, the normal thoughts that are in your head that you and I are you know, talking about the ball game or something, you want those to melt from your mind because you want to pick up kind of the feeling of the Greek art when you're walking through ancient Greece. You want to pick up the feeling of the medieval art. You want to sort of get into different rhythms and sort of let yourself melt away the way yourself might melt away if you're lying on the grass looking up at a beautiful sky of stars, you know, in in a chilly night or something like that. So do that first, I would say. But at some point you do want to sort of flip a switch Mm -hmm. And you want to say, well, okay, now that I have felt invisible long enough, I also want to think things. So 
you know, this life, I, I'm going to the Egyptian art. This, the Egyptians are obsessed with death and they're thinking about death. What do I think about death? And sort of use the Egyptian stuff as kind of a, a whetstone for you to carve your own, sharpen your own feelings about this. Sort of assert yourself, you know, kind of wrestle with this art a little bit. This is a, a rare opportunity you have to think about life and death and the gods and the cosmos, as I said earlier, um, and kind of do that. And then I also think, I'm packing a lot into this day, but you also want to pick favorites. I think one just clean piece of advice I can give people is my mom would make us, when we'd go to the Art Institute of Chicago, pick a favorite in every gallery before you leave. Just be like, that's it. That's the one. Because if you do that, it sharpens your, your looking and it also teaches you about yourself, you know? Like, give it, if you're standing in front of a famous painting and everyone tells you this is a great painting, like, you're going to learn eventually, it doesn't come quickly, but you're going to learn eventually to stand in front of that and be like, well, do I feel something or not? You know? Mm -hmm. Pay attention to your own, like, the way you know something's funny because you laugh. You know something is beautiful because you have a response. You have a sort of welling inside wow. you. You have this kind of feeling of like, you, maybe you're shaking your head, maybe you're saying, my God, my God, just look at that. Whatever it is for you, you will learn what that response is. But you gotta be quiet, and you gotta really let the art do its work. You gotta let it imprint itself on you. Um, and so the, the process of picking out favorites can, can help you with that. Bro, this was a blast. Good. I hope you had fun. I did. Give the plug for the book and your socials and everything. Bro, I had so much fun. So just give the plug oh, where I can fi follow you on your website, Twitter, the Instagram, the book. Yeah, sure. Um, All the Beauty in the World is the book. It came out in February from Simon & Schuster. It should be able to get it wherever you're looking. And uh, yeah, um, at Patrick Bringley. Um, I'm on Twitter, not really. Um, I'm on Instagram a little more. Um, and then my website is just patrickbringley.com or metmuseumbook.com. Uh, I imagine a bunch of you guys are New Yorkers who are listening, so uh, come take a tour. And, dude, I'm not an art guy, and I absolutely love the book. So, bro, kudos, and thank you so much, man. Thank you so much. This has been fun. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.